Good morning, and welcome back to another episode of Backbench Drivers. I'm your host, Matthew. Hope everyone had an enjoyable Christmas. Uh, good time with friends and family. Hope you got all the gifts you wanted. Um, John, uh, he's not with us this week, so we'll wish him a, a good holiday. Uh, instead, I'm joined by Flynn and Josh Howes. How are we, boys? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having us on, Matthew. Good, thanks, Matthew. No worries. Um, yeah, over the Christmas break, I managed to catch the King's Address. Um, did either of you watch that, boys? Yeah. Yeah, I did yeah, see I did. the King's Address. What do we think of it? I thought it was pretty bad, to be honest with you. Like, I mean, at least Jesus Christ got a mention, but um, probably a few things. First of all, kind of conflating Christianity with other Abrahamic religions. Um one of which doesn't even really celebrate Christ's birth at all. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just to focus on sort of tacky moralism, things like environmentalism and, like, global harmony, but uh, not, really, not at all talking about the gospel, which is the central message of Christmas. I, I, I agree in the most part. I do like um, mm. the focus on servant leadership and, and the whole, like, helping out the community. I think that's a good and uh, very... Um, necessary uh, message these days but i do agree it should be like from the defender of the faith the head of the anglican church you would expect a more uh, more christian focus and a necessary doesn't have to be a sermon or a um anything too strong you just look at mm. what the uh, previous monarch would do on her dresses and that's kind of the standard you would expect Yeah, it was it was clearly written to be a non-offensive speech, and apparently that means taking some of the Christianity out of it now. Um, certainly, picking up on your point, Josh, I thought his mentions of kind of across faiths and many belief systems, like you don't hear that kind of language used when other leaders are celebrating holy days in other faiths. So. Mm. Like, for example, Eid has become somewhat of a ritual one in Australia for leaders to celebrate. You don't get mentions of Christianity, right, because it's an Islamic holy day. Yeah. Now, is this just a uh, bid to stay relevant, you think, in the monarchy? Because the younger generations in England are a lot less English, a lot less uh, Christian, is this just a self-defense mechanism or is this a genuine belief of his, you think? I think it is a self-defense mechanism. Um, I think that the monarchy before a great deal of immigration occurred used to be self-sustaining because people had a sort of cultural or ethnic interest in it remaining. Um, as, you know, as you've said, King Charles now feels as though he has a responsibility to branch out to other faith groups and other ethnic groups uh, in a bid to, to keep his head, I suppose. Uh, you know, we've got uh, the Republic potentially breathing down his necks uh, if Albanese wins his second term. Uh, and I think that the case is true for other Commonwealth countries as well. Yeah, you mentioned the the threat of uh, republicanism. Do you think this outbranching to this more progressive um, base or this messaging will help defend him against this or is it just futile? I think it's futile. Um, not so as though any of us were around when this happened, but of course, his uh, divorce with his former wife uh, certainly has left a mark on um, yeah people who can remember it happening. 
and I think that ultimately they've got a problem with the institution of monarchy itself. Um, I think that any kind of window dressing is not going to matter too much to them. But that's that's my opinion. Yeah, I mean, well, England is becoming less English, right? And so therefore the monarchy is feeling like it needs to change. Um, I don't necessarily think that's the right thing to do, but certainly his speech there and a lot of the king's messaging since his coronation have been to try and win back support in a country where you know love of the monarchy if as you might put it is um is certainly declining yeah um just to circle back to josh's statement around whether or not albanese will do a uh, a republican referendum in the second term do you think he's still likely to do this given the rather drastic defeat he experienced in the voice referendum and the fact that the Republican referendum was defeated soundly in the 90s? Is this kind of a thing he's bolted down doing? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Like, I suppose you're right. Having said what I said, it is less likely that the Republic referendum will go ahead. But with that being said, I think that Albanese and the Labour Party probably know that Charles is less popular than um, those who will follow from him. And so if now is, if there's any time to push for a republic, despite the uh, disappointment with the voice for Albanese, I think that um, it needs to be while Charles is still on the throne because he's particularly unpopular, um, but I think his son and his grandson are less so. And um, what happened in the last referendum was two, the two sides, the monarchist and the republican sides, were represented by Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, and a lot of people say Tony Abbott influenced that uh, the result of that referendum a lot. Do you see any kind of young people within the liberal circles that could rise up in defence of the monarchy if a referendum were to be held in Albanese's second term? Yeah, maybe a few people. Like there are probably some younger cultural cultural warriors um, in the backbenches and on some of the assistant cabinet positions. People like Andrew Hasty or Keith Wallahan, I think, are likely to go strong uh, in favour of the monarchy. It's probably a more of a hawkish uh, sort of Western um, sort of neo-imperial motivation for them, um, sort of supporting the West against the East and um, the Third World. But yeah, someone like Andrew Hasty, I can see him being a pretty strong proponent of. Uh, of monarchy if the republic referendum goes ahead is peter dutton a monarchist i'm not familiar with that i mean i don't think he'd be a republican i don't know if he's ever said anything super strongly in favor of the monarchy but yeah i'm basically certain that if dutton was still opposition leader or even not that he would be if he loses the next election but if dutton were um certainly he'd support a monarchy but i don't know if if there's anything particularly monarchistic about him do you think that's just all the members and the and the branches would be pushing the liberal party that hard that a republican leader wouldn't or at least a publicly facing uh republican leader wouldn't work in the liberal party 
Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think we'll ever get someone like another Turnbull who's so moderate that he supports a republic. Like that seems pretty unimaginable. Yeah, and especially considering the the future of the moderates in the Liberal Party isn't too strong, looking too good. Um, had a lot of election loss to Teals, and it it's not looking like likely that these seats will come back to moderate Liberals. So you have um, a whole crop of old guard. Um, Moderates, including Julie Bishop, um, Malcolm Turnbull, um, what's his name from Kuhn, Josh Frydenberg, they're no longer in the party, so it's a lot harder for them to sway the uh, the top brass. I think you're right. Yeah, I think I've I've spoken to a number of people working within the Liberal Party, and their realistic position is they're never going to win back Eastern Sydney. They're never going to win back the various teal seats. And they need to make a, a sort of realignment towards Western Sydney and the Western suburbs where they can really hurt Labor, who is still, of course, their, their primary opposition. Is that a function of changing demographics in the sense of both not only just immigration, but also just cultural changes within who's living in Eastern Sydney, the type of inner city culture, that kind of stuff? What's, more, what's the yeah. largest reason behind this? I mean, realistically, I'm not from Sydney, so I can't speak too much to this, but as far as I'm aware, apart from uh, a sort of disproportionate Jewish population, Eastern Sydney is uh, disproportionately European or Anglo compared to other parts of Sydney. And so I don't know if the cause of the teal shift has been demographic change. It's certainly been cultural and political and um, economic changes as people become more wealthy uh, and more and wealthy enough to be able to afford green policies while they keep their money. Um, I think that the Liberal Party probably sees uh, people in the Western suburbs as natural conservatives who come from uh, Middle Eastern and um, Eastern European countries. And so I think that's why, I don't know if it'll work, but I think that's why they're trying to pick up those seats for that reason. And it certainly mimics what conservative parties have been trying to do across the world. If you look at America or into Europe, I'll at, also but, add a caveat to that. In Europe, there has been some success with minor right-wing parties among highly educated young white men on the issues of immigration specifically. But then again, Europe does have a larger like immigration problem than we do in Australia, so I don't think that effect will be as prominent here. Just touching on what Josh said there about the, um, the inner city um, teal kind of seats, these type of people being able to afford green policies. This has been a large talking point in the media and within and around the party around um, climate change policies, renewable targets, um, and, and just uh, environmental stewardship more generally. And there seems to be um, a lot of just back and forward around what the Liberal Party should be putting forward as their messaging. And so I just wanted to um, ask the boys firstly, what are their views on environmental policies? I understand Flynn was a Greens voter at one point for this reason. Is that correct? Yeah, so I was a Greens voter in the 2019 election uh, because of their environmental policy stance. Um, And certainly that is something that, I still believe in. I still consider myself to be an environmentalist. Um, but I guess 
I think it's a mistake for conservatives to ignore environmental issues in a way I feel that they are at the moment. Um, certainly a problem that conservatism in Australia faces right now is the fact that it's overwhelmingly run by boomers. And I yeah. think if they're wanting to move and uh, move the party towards a younger demographic, environmentalism is uh, something that they can look at more without compromising any of their core uh, right-wing beliefs, I would say. Yeah, I don't I, think I, being environmentalist, uh, an environmentalist excludes you from being a conservative. No, and you see on the issue of the environment, it's the number one or number two issue for a lot of younger voters out there. And so there is a like there is going to be in a decade or two's time, if you don't get ahead of this, you're just going to not be able to win an election because these people will be going to the Teals, to Labor, to Greens, where there's a bit of brand loyalty, a bit of trust. And um, just to, to circle back, what specifically about the Greens environmental policy drew you there and what could the Liberals pick up? Certainly, yeah. So I guess it was the fact that they were a party that were specifically targeting young voters on an issue that you know we cared about um, at the time. To me, at least, I've felt like the other parties weren't really even interested in bringing that up as a discussion point. Um, and so you weren't left with much option. Um, to me, at least, I've felt like if I wanted to vote to support the environment, I had to vote for the Greens. Um, and post-2019, you know, with a lot of their other radical policies, that was something I drifted away from. But certainly, I think conservatives can offer a different form of environmentalism that isn't, well, let's just ban everything and let's, um, you know, make tax incentives for renewable energy companies and do all of this kind of top-down government approach. I certainly think there's scope for a more yeah. conservative path. And so is this kind of a, like a, a Teddy Roosevelt kind of, ecological conservation kind of kind of aspect where he still kind of right-wing and immigration and social issues but there's this uh there's this um notion of environmental stewardship as part of core part of the uh the appeal yeah well, i think it comes down to a question of australian identity so i don't know about you guys but certainly our Australian environment is a core part of our identity, at least in my opinion. And conservatism is all about, you know, conserving and uh, protecting traditional institutions and, and culture and values. And I think certainly that environmentalist um, opinions come into that form of conservatism. And it's not only just a political aspect to it. There's also a, uh, a moral or religious aspect to uh, being stewards of God's creation, isn't there? Certainly. Right. And God think, uh, put humans on this planet, right, in a position of responsibility to care for his great creation. 
And you do yeah, even, exactly. you know, you see. You go, Matthew. I'll jump in after. I was just going to quickly say, you see this, um, you're Catholic, with uh, Pope Francis has put a strong emphasis on living with the earth and not abusing it, uh, particularly in his um, first encyclical, Laudato Si'. I think there's, and it's um, pretty clear that we are called my God to look after his creation. That's not just the the the, the trees and the and the ecosystems, but it's also all the species. And that's through um, not only through what we do individually, but also through government policy, which we can influence. Uh, yeah, sorry, what were you going to say, Josh? Yeah, I mean, even going off that, um, you know, you see in the Old Testament various laws that God gives Israel, like um, you know, not muzzling an ox while it treads out the grain, or letting uh, every, you know, letting every seventh field lie fallow for a year. So there are certain laws that God institutes that kind of recognise that nature does have to be cared for if it's going to thrive and be sustained so yeah it's very interesting because there are a lot of like just following on from that you see like um especially a lot of modern agricultural uses they've destroyed what the environment was in the sense that there were habitats such as wetlands which provided uh, stuff uh, provided you know um, benefits that were not fully realized half a century ago and so we, you've had to, like for an example, if you're cropping, you like you, um, you know, basically terraform a whole bunch of fields, and then there's a lot of pests, and you have to use chemical um, pesticides, which not healthy for um, the broader, broader uh, environment through uh, runoff into waterways, which we inevitably both eat in the product and drink through our water um, sources where there is a natural ecosystem, you know, life cycle where yeah, in wetlands there's birds such as ibises that do prey on grasshoppers and crickets, which protects agricultural crops. So there is, you know, God did design this earth to be sustainable, to be renewable. And a lot of human practices have spat in the face of that and, it is good that there's a growing awareness around better practices and better ways to look after the earth that aren't chemical pesticides, that aren't, you know, these drastic measures which are causing human harm. I think you're right. And, I mean, um, it's interesting, speaking of sort of the Liberal Party's change in stance towards this issue, um, their pivot towards nuclear is fascinating. Like, there's a, a young gentleman, Will Shackle, what he, he'd, he'd be 17, I think, and, um, yeah, he's been quite a, a powerful uh, and, and non-progressive advocate for nuclear energy uh, and environmental sustainability. And uh, I think Dutton recently, or the, the Liberal Party recently, formally adopted um, a, uh, a uh, party stance in favour of nuclear energy. Uh, I think this is unlikely to, uh, to fail. I think we are going to see nuclear energy in the near future whenever the Liberal Party next wins an election. Especially considering with the national energy market, which connects all of the eastern coast uh, states, including um, South Australia, the base low power is coal. And that's because coal, you can fire it up whenever you need it, and it's pretty efficient. And, it, and then you have gas and, and increasingly um, distributed uh, photo, photovoltaics. 
And the, the issue with transitioning to renewables is that they are intermittent and they aren't, you know, they can't produce a consistent level of output of energy. And so you will need something like, um, like uh, nuclear energy, which is more consistent in output, or you need a greater degree of um, energy storage systems through batteries or pumped hydro to offset the loss of coal-powered uh, um, energy. So I think nuclear is both politically advantageous for the Liberal Party and also necessary for the stability of the energy market in Australia, which ultimately, if you're the party that transitions to renewable energies and it's done you know, correctly, it's done efficiently, and it's done without people, that, you know, regular Australians suffering, I think that's a, a very good uh, um, political advantage to you. Particularly when yeah, Australia... I, I, I certainly I think mean, all of got... that is, is very true. But... Sorry. No. Um, I certainly think all of that is very true. The challenge with, with nuclear is always the um, safety concerns within the public, how, however you know, unfounded they may be. Um, nuclear power is used all over the world and it is perfectly safe, but unfortunately... Um, negative opinions tend to linger uh, in people's minds and you know many people have seen Netflix documentaries of Chernobyl and and what have you so I think that is a challenge that nuclear has that um, a lot of other energy systems don't like, like even fossil fuels. And I mean perhaps stating the obvious but Australia if I remember correctly has has the if not one of the uh, greatest uh, uranium deposits in in the world, and so this seems to be like an untapped market, right? Um, something to be taken advantage of. With the uh, these the common um, concerns around uh, nuclear power and and the safety, would this largely be mitigated if we just dumped it in the middle of the Simpson Desert? You know, if we just built up a small town of maintenance workers and um, operational staff in the middle of I don't know, maybe an hour outside of Alice Springs, would that like would that be uh, palatable to the regular Australian? It depends who you consider the regular Australian to be. Um, Largely <laughs> irrational at times, to be fair. I think that, broadly speaking, it will be palatable to Australians, um, but potentially it may not be palatable to those Australians that have just elected Teals to their seats. In talking about the Teals and, and, and this desire for, especially wind farms, there is a environmental cost to to wind farms and to solar power in, in the fact that uh, they disrupt land use that could otherwise be used for conservation. And there is also, I'm not sure how, how widespread it is, but there are reports of... Um, uh, serious um, disruption to bird species, especially from wind turbines. I'm not sure if any of you know any more than me about that. Uh, as far as I know, there's not a lot of research onto the impact, like for or against. So I think anybody that's claiming one way or the other is kind of making it up to a certain extent. And certainly mm -hmm. it's something that needs to be looked at, right? Yeah. Um, there's just this assumption that uh, 
you know, solar and wind are 100% good. Um, but in reality, right, there's always trade-offs and things that yeah. you need to consider, right? They've all got to be manufactured and built as well. And the yeah. cost of doing that needs to be accounted for too. And just uh, another trade-off I just had a thought of is there, there's a, there is going to be a lifespan for these assets, um, it's particularly with wind turbines. I don't really see an appetite for these once they stop being operational or once the maintenance cost becomes greater than the benefit of having it. I don't see them taking them down and reusing the materials or anything like that. I just see these becoming white elephants across the countryside. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about that one to be honest. It's probably an issue that a lot of people really haven't thought about. I know with solar panels there's certainly a lot of valuable materials within them that probably make recycling them economically viable. With mm. wind turbines, I'm not so sure about that. And particularly if we're building them off the coast or something, right? It's probably likely that they just remain where they are once they've reached their used by date. And just um, circling back more broadly on the issue, as you mentioned prior, this is quite a palatable issue for younger Australians. You know, this could be a good way for the Liberal Party to branch into the younger demographic without having to give up any of the social or, or economic um, right wing positions they have do you see the uh, donor class of the liberal party you know the gina reinhardt's the clive palmer's influencing the party away from that uh, potential uh, angle i think i mean what i would say is that at the end of the day the boomer generation the sort of more wealthy uh, upper class conservative uh, demographic they don't have anywhere else to go there's no other party that really represents them. They're not working class enough for One Nation. Um, the Teal parties have already taken everyone who they will take. Uh, Labor and the Greens, of course, don't fit their, fit their worldview. Um, even if the Liberal Party pivots away from this boomer generation, because we have compulsory voting, the boomers will still vote for the Liberal Party and uh, the, the junior Reinhardts of the world will still try to exert pressure on the party by, by giving it money. Um, so I think that the Liberal Party really has less to lose than some of the scaremongers might suggest. And do you yeah, think I'm not that... so sure about that. I certainly um, think so? that the the you know the money is very important to the Liberal Party, and certainly I think that it's a a flaw with the the right wing in Australia at the moment that a lot of their funding comes from these lobby groups. Um, and I think that has played a role in their positions on environmentalism. The willingness to break from that, I guess, either they're going to have to make a change and see if the money disappears. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Certainly the further right part, like micro parties that we've seen pop up in Australia, uh, pro-environmental stances haven't been popular among them and I, I i just think that's a symptom of how their where their base is coming from and how the money is 
is appearing for them to, uh, you know, do their their work and run for elections. And um, I suppose just to follow up on. Sorry, you go, Josh. Yeah, I mean, I guess on that account, um, it does. De- you're right. I suppose it does depend on what sort of environmentalism the Liberal Party embraces. If it is a strongly pro-nuclear position, perhaps even to the detriment of, um, you know, solar energy or wind energy, then the Gina Reinhardts of today may very well be the nuclear tycoons of tomorrow. People can always make business out of For these sure. ventures, um, which perhaps is the the middle ground that needs to be pursued. And um. Because I just follow up on what Flynn said around these minor parties not doing well. Um, you, you only have to look at Clive Palmer, his United Australia Party, who Clive spent, I don't know, hundreds of millions across both the 2019 and 2022 federal elections. And he's only have one senator to look for it now in Victoria, which doesn't seem a very good return on investment. Yeah, I mean, particularly considering that the UAP's Victoria branch has um, just deregistered, if I understand correctly. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was $100 million that he spent. Uh, and this is over two elections, right? He ran, of course, in the previous one and didn't win anyone or any seats. Yeah. And considering that most of that would have been spent in Queensland, considering that's his home state, it's a state he's influenced uh, the state branch of the LNP quite a fair bit. It is not a viable option for these boomer liberal donor types to go and start their own party or to support minor parties because it hasn't um, hasn't uh, bared any fruit in the past. And I say his success in Melbourne, uh, Victoria, apologies, is more broadly to the anti-lockdown kind of movement rather than anything to do with Clive Palmer's dispute with the Liberal Party. Yeah, I think you're right. And I suppose if it's not off topic too much, we are already seeing the uh, remembrance of the COVID lockdowns, the vaccine mandates dissipating. You know, it's not a policy platform anymore to run on, um, apart from maybe a few uh, Liberal senators like Jared Rennick. There isn't much talk on recompensating the vaccine injured um, or uh, doing an investigation into government po- government policy during that period of time. So it seems with some of these campaigns, Australians forget too quickly. And so it's difficult to run a campaign on that issue, um, even in the months after it's occurred. Do you think that's characteristic of Australians, this this apathy, or is that because there's a larger, more uh, more present issue around cost of living that's affecting people's memories more? I think it is an apathy. I can't remember which year it was, but in one of John Howard's election years, perhaps when he was running um, for the first time, he said that at the end of the day, his government policy was that Australians be comfortable and relaxed. And so even if there are things like vaccine mandates, uh, as long as Australians aren't losing too much money or their standard of living isn't declining drastically, um, well, government policies are indeed in favour and ostensibly for the purpose of ensuring Australians uh, comfort, then, I, yeah, I think ultimately, since we're the lucky country, we don't we don't worry too much about things that are probably worth worrying about. Yeah, whether it be the older generation and uh, environmental degradation or um, the, the COVID lockdowns, it's a little disappointing, and I think it probably leads to disappointing results politically. Just because it didn't always seem to be that way for Australians, you know, you you look at the the accounts 
of the, the people who fought for federation. They weren't apathetic. They seemed to have a genuine concern and a inner uh, desire to want better for their country at the cost of, you know, of an easier life. So is that something that can be reanimated within Australia or are we just destituted to being an apathetic people? I think we will always be apathetic. It probably depends on your outlook on the way in which um, civilizations tend to trend. I know um, Oswald Spengler, quite an influential theorist of the early 1900s, sort of put it this way in the sense that um, societies have a summer, uh, an autumnal, uh, a winter and a spring period of time. Um, And, of course, the decline of a civilization, um, the beginning of that decline is marked by decadence and wealth, um, at which point people simply become a little soft. And I think that we see this in the Roman Empire, and I think we're seeing this today. Um, And I just don't think things will get better until they get worse, uh, until this sort of natural trajectory concludes. But I don't know, maybe either of you have a different perspective on the extent to which things can be regained. I agree with that in large parts, is that because of our wealth, especially due to the mining boom, a lot of the lower classes in Australia are quite content because they've had this this injection of wealth through resources that has placated a lot of concerns around the political issues around COVID lockdowns. Because prior to the COVID recession, we've had, as a country, we had the longest run without a recession, I'm pretty sure it was 30 odd years. And so we are in a, a period where people are earning a lot more than their parents. People's standard of living materially is better, but that doesn't always necessarily relate to a, a, a happier lifestyle, which we are seeing through higher rates of depression, higher rates of suicide, uh, mental illness, uh, loss of community. So do you think we are coming to see the full effects of our uh, winter, as you put it, Josh? I think so. Um, That's what Spengler would say, at least. Um, He sort of did predict that uh, it would be the 21st century in which this sort of thing would begin. Um, You'd have a sort of Caesarean period in which the the government would expand, um, but it it would also draw draw away from sort of the outer reaches of the world and would come in and focus its attention on itself and growing government power um and you know we've seen that with the uh the security state and uh the covid lockdowns um not that i'm a libertarian but um yeah this does seem to be the natural trajectory during this period of time uh and it does seem to um signal the beginning of a growing discomfort for people their standard of living will just begin to inevitably decline and do you think that just wrapping it up back with renewables Obviously, stuff like coal and oil is a finite resource. Do you think a transition towards more renewable energy sources, such as um, wind and solar, and to a certain extent nuclear, will be able to offset this decreases in standard of living, or is this just a a feature of empires and civilizations? No, things can get better. There will always be periods of time in which um, things can improve, and I think that. Nuclear is one of those um, assets. Um, at the end of the day, any good government should be in favour of a national flourishing, whether that be um, something like the Bradfield Scheme, in which um, 
Australia is made more hospitable, particularly in the interiors of the country, uh, or you know, sources of energy that are needed to achieve that, like nuclear. Um, so I think that at the end of the day, a lot of problems are a result of a lack of cult of national flourishing um, and a good source of energy, particularly an innovative source of energy um, that has unique benefits, is is the way out of that problem. And um, particularly on the the Bradfield scheme, it seems that the nature of the Australian political system that each form of government has to go for re-election every three, four, three or four years seems to limit the, the ability for us as a people to have this long-term thinking, to have these big aspirational goals of nation building, of um, whatever you want to call it, and we seem to be limited to just what can we do now? We can, you know, and all the, the big ticket items on the budget before an election all seem to have a three- to five-year focus. Would you agree, Josh, Flynn? Yeah, yeah I, I certainly think... agree with that. Ego, yeah. If you have anything else to say, then I'll, I'll add some stuff. Uh, yeah, so I certainly agree with that. Um, I think that the three-year term is just so short it completely stifles any long-term vision from either side of politics right um you've got a year of campaigning for the election and then you have like a year of actually governing and then a year of you know buttering people up so that they'll vote for you again in the next election i think it the electoral cycle certainly needs to be five years i would say to actually have governments that are willing to present or do things that may not be popular at the time but might be good for the overall benefit of the country and i think that that would actually help differentiate the labor and the liberal party at the moment because to me at least it seems that they are getting closer and closer together it's easier to make small differences to attack at an election than actually have a drastically different policy platform on a lot of issues. And I mean, we saw this with the New South Wales election earlier this year, right? We had um, some big ticket items, things like uh, people being able to put their retirement funds towards uh, their superannuation, towards purchasing a house, Uh, things like the uh, tunnel under the Blue Mountains that was scrapped just before the election by the Parite government or put aside just before the election in favour of um, increasing that, that, um, the train lines in Western Sydney because they were trying to get those seats. Uh, and so it goes without saying, it is a political game, but um, at the end of the day, it means people have to end up sacrificing um, great ideas or um, things that will move Australia forward. Even if you look at it from a leftist perspective, um, Albanese had a big ticket item, something like the voice to parliament, which had a lot of symbolic power. Uh, but because it was so symbolic, Australians didn't see the tangible, tactile benefit out of it, uh, and so they decided to vote against it. Do you, um, either of you, I'll start with Flynn, do you see um, any uh, solutions within the current political system of transferring to more longer-term thinking on environmental ideas, on you know, nation-building, on these major ticket items? Uh, that's a good question. Um... At the moment, I would say there's not a lot of willingness to do that. Um, 
particularly within the political establishment that we have at the moment. They're all products of their own system. And they're really interested in, in winning elections. And it's very clear over the last few, you know, how that's done. You know, Labor avoids talking about tax at all. Um, they don't talk about immigration. Yeah. Liberals talk about the economy. Um, Labor talk about um, spending money, right? Helping the, the people worse off, whoever they may be. That is really the crux of what it comes down to. Um, and I don't really see that changing within the current system that we have. Uh, yeah. Same question to you, Josh. Do you see mm. a uh, solution within the current political system to transition to a longer-term vision? I think that there has to be a solution, but I think that the solution has a lot to do with culture. I think that Australians do need to change the way they think about politics and about society at a larger level. Um, it probably needs to be a sort of, um, yeah, perhaps a religious revivification in the sense that people need to start thinking again about um, the importance of good government, the importance of selflessness in policy making and decision making and how they vote. Um, of course, there needs to be a political element to that. But I think that um, perhaps if Australian conservatives uh, or even Australians that wanted good government would have focused more on the arts, things like um, film and, um, and literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part, um, perhaps this can change the way, this, this can change the sort of uh, slump we're in, in terms of people only thinking in a materialistic or economic way, uh, specifically a selfish way about the decisions they make. That's and, a really uh, interesting just, answer. Yeah. yeah. Just following up on that, people like Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson, pretty crucial to Australia's Federation, were poets, were writers, as well as political activists. So it is a important aspect the the cultural side of it and just um following up on what josh said do you think this kind of um what we see more emerging um across australia this this isolation not isolation is the wrong term but this uh yeah no social isolation this kind of um disintegration of community and this kind of thoughts of what's good for me rather than what's good for the country, do you see this being an impediment towards the Liberal Party going forward and they're attracting these these people from Western Sydney, from the outer suburbs? Yeah, I mean, I think that this sort of cultural milieu that we're describing is probably uniquely Western. And so I don't think that people from the Western suburbs or people from other countries that aren't in Europe think this way. They probably have a sort of in-group preference, ethnic self-interest, but also a religious motivation behind the decisions they make. Um, it's just unfortunate that the way they think isn't quite in line with what we would like Australians to think or the way we would like Australians to think. But um, you're right. You look at the uh, same-sex marriage vote and it was the, the sort of Muslims and other groups and perhaps Asian groups in the Western suburbs who voted most strongly against same-sex marriage. Uh, but then again, you look at the Republican vote uh, in 1999, where, of course, people from the Western suburbs didn't have much self-interest, even though they think didn't, didn't have much of an interest in a, in a monarchy, um, even though they do think in this more cultural, religious way. They, they think in a way that's different to the way in which some of the old stock Australians would think culturally. I don't know if that answers your question. But... And um, obviously, due to the, the, the 
ethnic and cultural differences, this this divide will always remain, at least in some manner or some regard. Do you think it's possible for the Liberal Party transitioning forward to appeal to both the older stock Australians, you know, the the Anglicans, the Catholics, as well as the immigrant groups in in or for, uh, descendants of immigrant groups in Western Sydney? the Eastern Europeans, the Asians, the Middle Easterns? Do you think there is this big tent party possible? that's possible? I, I think in some ways it would be pretty difficult um, and it would have to be on specific key issues like abortion, um, euthanasia, same-sex marriage, a lot of those things which have already passed us um, but are hopefully going to be on the table again. But, yeah, there are some issues like the, your economic policy where these groups of people have quite varied levels of um, economic development or sort of class levels. And so, yeah, I think it would be difficult to unite these people um, on a front like that. I don't know how you do it. Yeah, and it brings us back around to the King's Christmas message, right? When you're trying to find a big picture policy platform that uh, unites all of these competing ethnic interests you just end up with a message that is watered down generic and somewhat meaningless right so yeah i think the challenge is there in that i don't think there's a way to be um preserving australian culture and um looking toward a better australian future in a way that you can unite all of these people together. Yeah, I, I would agree to a large extent that, um, and just to follow up on what Josh said around the social issues being the, the largest bridge between the old stock and the, um, I don't really know a good term for them, but these ethnic minorities in Western Sydney. It's interesting that given that the LNP has shifted away from social issues over the last decade or so, where we had this this large cultural war in around twenty around the Trump era and a little bit after with Scott Morrison, um, do you view that as the LNP saying we've lost the culture war? Uh, do you see the social issues being palatable to the regular Australian as on the in the electoral sense? And uh, do you see in the future that a reemergence of the importance of social issues? I think that um, we will have a period of time in which what it looks like for the conservative wing or the, the hard right wing of the um, Liberal Party to be hard right or to be conservative will be different than that which we saw with Abbott, for example. Um, I was speaking with Alistair Coe, who was the former leader of the Liberal Party in the ACT, uh, and he told, told me that Dutton is a conservative in a sense. He's part of the National Conservative faction, but he's not a conservative in the way that Abbott was. He's more of a national security conservative. And so I think that we see again this pivot towards the East, this pivot towards an imperialism or a neo-imperialism. Um, at the end of the day, uh, factionalism and ideology has a lot to do with what you're emphasizing. And so Dutton can be a social conservative, but because he's so, such a, such a uh, war hawk, uh, such a sort of national security conservative, that's going to be, that's going to have precedent over any sort of traditional old stock social conservative uh, concerns of social conservatism um, and if this is 
if if Dutton loses the next election, which I think is likely, we are probably going to see a pivot towards the centre again, not towards the uh, progressive wing, but someone who's a little more uh, appealing than Dutton, I think. So just following up from that, is the packaging of the um, national security conservatism and the kind of old stock conservatism you're talking about, can there be a, a good synthesis between the Peter Dunn and the Tony Abbott approaches? Yeah, perhaps. Um, there's a minister who I mentioned earlier, who Andrew Hasty, um, who, you know, I, can, I, I know of people who know him and they can speak well to his credentials. He's a strong Christian. He's very conservative. Uh, I think he abstained at least from same-sex marriage. He voted against uh, various euthanasia bills. Um, and, and he's a war hawk, right? And so that will turn people off, maybe people like some of us. But at the same time, um, he probably is the best that we have at the moment in terms of the Liberal Party uh, and people who are actually likely to be leader one day. Um, from what I hear, people, people say, you know, this guy is going to be prime minister one day. So he's probably someone to keep on our radar, even if we don't agree with everything. But yeah, I think he's, he could be very well a uniting force. And I suppose maybe I've got a question for Flynn. Um, how was it that you kind of got into that environmentalist side of politics? Have you always been socially conservative or have you always ch- tended to the right while being an, sort of on the environmentalist side? Um, what, what's been your journey as someone who's sort of outside the traditional uh, scope of someone who's like solidly right wing? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I, I grew up fairly progressive, I would say. Um, a product of the Australian school system, um, certainly which was discussed a little bit in the last episode with Dr. Salter. Um, and that kind of is what led me to the Greens in 2019 and, and beforehand. Um, but I'd say afterwards, there was a few things that kind of changed my thinking there, um, particularly around like not the Greens environmental policy, but a lot of their other policies, they come they come together on the left. There's this idea that if you have a socially progressive view of one issue, then therefore you have to be socially progressive across all of these other issues. So if you support environmental action, you've also got to support abortion or support decriminalization of drugs or, um, you know, support rejecting uh, um, differences between men and women. Um, And I guess that's kind of what made me drift away, this idea that having an opinion that was not socially progressive on an issue like that, um, you really got shunned, um, is how I would put that. And so there tends to be a lot of questions around those things that they just don't like to answer um, and that kind of drifted me towards um, the more conservative, nationalist kind of views that I have um, today. I suppose, yeah, you go, Matthew, and then I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, what, what issue specifically, and was this gradual or was there a, a moment that just opened your eyes or, or kind of ref- uh, unveiled the wall? Um, 
I would say that it was more of a gradual thing, uh, but certainly during 2019 and 2020, um, I got more involved in, in US politics um, and something like the, the Black Lives Matter movement was certainly something I didn't support and having opinions that I thought were reasonable around that, you know, not wanting to defund the police, um, got a lot of pushback from left-wingers that I that I know. And so that kind of brings up those questions of, you know, why is it that it's racist or, um, you know, racial profiling to arrest immigrants if they're committing crimes? Um, is that not something that we want to do? Why within universities is it that support is almost exclusively there for for women and for migrants, like, shouldn't the focus more be on, you know, it's our pinnacle of our education institutions. It, shouldn't we place more value on merit and and thought and ideas? Um, and I guess it was those kind of viewpoints that led me where I am today, looking at, you know, wanting to preserve our national culture and our national identity and supporting free speech and and what have you. And just one more before Josh asks his, do you see this kind of free thinking common on the progressive left? Is is there a lot of people who have these ideas, but there's kind of this culture of you can't ask these questions, you can't think that, or is it a lot of people walk in step with each other? It's hard to say, I would say. I think there's a lot of self-censorship on the left. Um, if it's an issue that, you don't hold the same opinion as is what is accepted, um, you stay silent. Uh, and so I think that builds a bad culture where it's really the the, the far-left ideas that, that come to the surface, and I certainly think you see that at the moment um, within the Greens platform, right? They love to use the word decriminalise or free or... Um, you know, it's very easy to to sell a fantasy, right? I'm sure, um, you know, when we're all at school running for primary school captains or whatnot, you know, you can promise to put Coca-Cola in the bubblers, but in reality, that's not going to happen. But I think that these kind of ideas or, um, yeah, these super radical ideas are the ones that come to the surface because there's just this accepted opinion that if you have one progressive view, you should share all progressive views. And I think you see that a bit in um, some cancel culture issues uh, around around the world. One that comes to mind, for example, is um, J.K. Rowling, right? She wrote a series of books, Harry Potter, that would be considered fairly progressive, I would say. I know they're certainly not uh, loved by lots of members of the Christian community, um, but she was cancelled for her views on on women and transgender women particularly, right? So having one non-progressive opinion immediately excludes you from that space. And I mean, on the topic of, um, this could be off kilter a bit, so we can give sort of move back if this is going in the wrong direction but on the topic of sort of green policies appealing to the younger generation 
um, and not just their environmental policy, but also their foreign policy. Um, you look at the recent sort of Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, and I think it's something like 51%, this could be an American study, but 51% of 18 to 25-year-olds are in favour of, uh, of Palestine, if, if they would have to choose between Palestine and Israel. Or, yeah, Palestine and Israel. And so I do wonder, um, is there a market for, and this isn't probably something that's going to happen anytime soon, but if the Liberal Party is sort of waking up and smelling the roses in regards to um, environmental policy, I wonder if uh, maybe even over the next few decades, um, the Liberal Party could could sort of get on board with perhaps the the youths or the, the Gen Z and Gen Alpha's perspective on international relations and shift towards a more isolationist, um, in, a, in a more isolationist direction, uh, or even other political parties like the Labour Party. I'm not sure what your thoughts are in regards to to that international relations side of things. It's an interesting point. Um, I think there's actually a lot of similarities between the the kind of the far left and the more conservative uh, wing of the Liberal Party than either of them would like to admit. Um, and certainly my view, like the political spectrum is often considered to be a straight line from left to right, but I would consider it to be more of a circle kind of thing. I certainly think there's a path from having those far left views of, you know, fighting against the establishment um, to a certain extent, there is support there for, for freedoms. Like a bill of rights is currently in the greens platform, as I understand it. Um, And things like foreign policy, as you mentioned, um, and also like political demonstration laws. There's a lot of, issues there that whilst coming from two directions both the the conservative and the kind of left-wing um supporters they do end up in a similar position um it's not something we've seen in australian politics before to my understanding at least but i think there's there's scope there for um for that kind of the left-wingers of today in Gen Z and Gen Alpha to take on a more conservative, like social conservative um, viewpoint on other issues. Um, If given that option that they see a party that still resonates with some of their core beliefs, if that makes sense. Yeah, just uh, following up on that, you do see a lot of work, like especially from... Eric Kaufman in from the London School of Economics, where today's uh, the Gen Z Zoomers are conservative on certain issues around, um, uh, especially financially. Then pre, uh, previous generations such as Millennials and uh, Gen X, and so we could see this change over time as Gen X has. Do you think that time will play a part in? changing these the, the the progressive left of today the younger generation into a um, into a uh, more conservative voting block in the way uh, that you mentioned on these certain issues yeah i certainly think there's scope for that um i don't know about you guys but i think that gen z and certainly gen alpha are different from the generations that have come beforehand i think conservatives of today have this opinion that oh the millennials and the the gen z they'll become more conservative as they get older 
Um, I don't necessarily think that's true. Um, I think that if they're willing to to give a little bit on some issues, they will be able to get um, some more voters within these generations. Um, because, as you say, there there is evidence out there that that we are more conservative on issues like like the economy um, than perhaps some of the past generations have been um, at our point in time. And um, do you think your your trajectory is that something that you know uh, us as political activists can we? you know, learn from your experience and, and try and formulate a way to attract people on the progressive left who are having these secret uh, disagreements? Is there a way we can, you know, extend an olive branch or kind of have a pipeline, if you were? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think the place to start would be to actually be interested in having a conversation there's a lot of derision on the right of the greenie vote. Um, and, you know, some of that might be <laughs> founded in truth uh, to, to certain people. But I think that taking an interest and connecting through common issues is the way to go about it. So Josh mentioned Palestine, right? Um, it's an issue that a lot of social progressives um, are quite passionate about, and certainly that's something on on the right um, that they could connect over. Uh, because the reality is, right, we consider the the leftists to be this homogenous block, uh, but that's not really the case. And so, it's about finding an issue that you share a common opinion about, and then explaining a new idea that perhaps. They, they haven't seen on the left or presenting it in, in, in a way that uh, makes it palatable to the ideas they've been told to believe. And I mean, on the general topic of um, sort of, you look at the electoral map, um, the Greens votes or the Greens voters uh, are all in the inner city suburbs of the various metropolitan regions of Australia. It is, you know, inner Brisbane, uh, inner Melbourne, some parts of, of inner Sydney that uh, that have the highest share of Green votes and have the seats that are occupied by Greens members. Um, and so if we can draw yep. people from the, the inner suburbs, people, from, in other words, from the elite of Australia, um, we can really get quite powerful, wealthy, influential, um, dedicated people on our side. Um, people, people from that, those parts of Australia are the ones who are really pulling the levers. And if we can just, you know, whether it be on environmental issues or foreign policy, um, really embrace what the true right-wing position should be, then um, I think we can see a lot of success, even in a general societal level. And uh, Josh, do you see this coming from, as you mentioned prior, from the cultural uh, and religious elements that, um, that that need to be established? Yeah, I think so. Um, I suppose you just have to look at what people talk about uh, and what causes people to think about certain issues. I haven't seen the Barbie movie, but the number of sermon illustrations and things I've heard from secular people about the Barbie movie, about the message it portrays, the way in which it causes people to think about an issue, even if I, don't, I probably don't agree with the, the message that Barbie's putting forward, 
But even if even if we had things like films that sort of subtly, without being like a sort of Daily Wire, Lady Ballers thing, where they're just out and out political, but if we just have a film that sort of captures Australian national feeling or um, something about energy or something of even just things about sort of uh, a foreign a foreign conflict and sort of tugs on the heartstrings a bit, causes people to think about an issue um, almost in a propagandistic way. Um, I think this maybe it's an untapped market. Maybe we need you know more right wing people making movies. But uh, yeah, things like that. I think that things that cause people to think, things that cause people to talk about certain issues. I definitely think like movies is like such a a massive target but even stuff like um music music's probably more accessible to the average person and you do see the influence of certain artists having on particular subcultures and and the effect those subcultures have over time uh, you could just look at people like Bob Dylan on the hippie movement and how that still ripples throughout today so it's it's not there isn't a massive barrier to entry for people to, to garner cultural influence or anything like that. That's a great point. I mean, who was it? Uh, we don't like him much, but it was the guy with the, the beard and the, the hair from um, the South who made that song, um, who was lambasted for it. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Uh, if not, that's fine. But um, Oh, the ginger fella. Yeah, that guy. What was Is the name it of Oliver? His Oliver? Yeah, Andrew Oliver. Um, I'm thinking Oliver Tree. It's not Oliver Tree. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> Whatever that was, it, it animated a certain sect of the, uh, yeah. the sort of boom icon, uh, boom icons of America. Um, and yeah, it causes people to become indignant. It causes them to become uh, to feel passionate about something. Uh, you know, even if it was a little corny. Um, yeah, if we could just capture that the music, you're would, right. Music is so accessible. Yeah, I would say, yeah, it's accessible. But I think. You've also got to kind of target and cultivate the right audience, because like um, I'm gonna remember his name after the podcast, but with that fella, he was targeting a particular kind of rube in America that's you know quite comfortable sitting on their their asses with uh, not much going on in their life and just complaining, whereas we kind of need to target these these you know inner city suburban you know, private school, you know, well-connected people to actually affect change because it's one thing to have, you know, cultural influence over people who don't affect society and it's another thing entirely to have cultural influence over the change makers, you know, the, 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 next, the next generation of establishment, uh, politicians, uh, business leaders, lo- lobbyists, that kind of thing. You are right, actually. We do need to try to work at convincing people who don't agree with us yet or are politically neutral. So I, I, at least in my experience, a lot of the people from like the, the inner city are politically neutral. A lot of it is, you know, in my experience, a lot of it is, you know, their girlfriend tells them to vote green, so they vote greens. You know, they're not really engaged. And you, if you just have a conversation with them, you, it does, you know, it like um, what Flynn was talking about, if you talk to them about their interests, what what they care about, you do have a lot more of uh, you do get see a lot more results than if you were just to you know just shout racist things at them, you know, <laughs> uh, for example. 
even um, sort of a, a sort of historical, perhaps a, a controversial historical example, but you know one that we wouldn't necessarily support. Um, you look at the film The Birth of a Nation, right? And this is a you know pro Ku Klux Klan, uh, you know, film. But you look at the effect that it had. People respected it because it was cinematographic, cinematographically a masterpiece. Um, and even today, people will still respect it for that reason. Um, and it had a great deal of uh, an effect on uh, United States foreign policy, immigration policy, um, and even you know enrollment in the Ku Klux Klan. And so you have a number of filmmakers or films that are highly controversial. Perhaps there are things in which we would disagree uh, on them, but they're very influential and they're very powerful. Um, and I think that if we can do things that are sort of controversial and perhaps pushing the third rail a little bit, we do them well and we do them professionally. People will actually listen to what they have to say. Um, I know the birth of a nation is perhaps a, a controversial example, but something something that I think, you know, we um, would agree with. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, there's also triumph of the wills, which again controversial, right? right. But it does. It is it's a more um, I think fitting example because it does show a an uprising political movement pioneering new methods of. Um, New methods of filmmaking, new technologies, new standards in film, to the success of a political, a certain political uh, movement, political um, ideas, that kind of thing. And so, um, do you see Australia? Because with Australian culture, a lot of it is kind of this, um, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago in I can't remember what the episode was, the Anzac one about the, the degradation of Australian culture and, and this kind of boganification, if you would, of the average Australian. Do you see any sort of um, – do you see a pathway for this more more um, highbrow kind of culture uh, kind of influence occurring or is it, or is it doomed to fail? I mean, I think it's interesting, uh, as people have become more wealthy, the Bogan class, um, as endearing as they are, uh, is sort of dying out a bit. Um, I mean, I've, you know, a place like Newcastle, for example, um, it's a lot, used to be uh, historically a large, industrial, very working class city. You know, you'd you'd walk through the main street and there'd be coal dust on the the ground and on the windowsills and things. Uh, But the culture's changed dramatically. It's become um, so much wealthier. Uh, It's become so much a more expensive place to live, but a place where there's more culture, a more higher culture. And I think the same is seen all across Australia. And so that perhaps is is one thing that we have on our side. But I think the other thing is that, I don't know if you, I haven't seen the Anzac Day episode, so I can't remember if you mentioned this, but Australian culture is is in many ways American culture, or at the very least, America dictates what the culture is. And so I suspect, like it would be great if we can untether ourselves from that. But I think that if American culture improves, if it becomes more highbrow and more conservative and more more on the right, then I think we see the same sort of thing happening in Australia. I could be wrong. Maybe I'll maybe you guys can push back on that. But I wonder if American culture is really the uh, it shifts our culture uh, in a great way, in a, in a in a large way. I think um, that's definitely true for especially millennials. Um, I'm not sure really if there's an adequate way to describe Gen Z culture anywhere. You know, Zoomers are quite a decentralized. So there's a lot of different cultural influences from a lot of, a lot of different cultural subgroups, which I think it makes it easier to exert some influence. But you definitely are right in the, the fact that 
you know, American uh, America sneezes, we catch a cold in that regard. And um, just on that, we, we, with the changing demographics in Australia, particularly larger Chinese and Indian groups, and the growing multipolarity of the global order, particularly with the rise of China, do we see this influence waning from America or do we, as a culture, double down on the American influence? You know, it's funny, right? Uh, <laughs> you go and then I'll, I'll add something. Okay. Um, it is funny, right? Just, you know, I go to the movies every so often and it's it's interesting uh, how many more Hindu movies, you know, movies in other languages, particularly Indian ones, uh, are coming onto our cinemas, right? Australian cinemas are now playing uh, films that aren't, we can't even understand. Um, you look at uh, Parasite, right? That South Korean movie that won an award a few years ago. Yeah, look, I think unfortunately Australia is moving away from an Anglo culture and towards uh, towards the east, whether it be places like Korea or India, uh, places that are still Western friendly and Western allied, but sort of non-white. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think it's the sort of thing we can really use to our advantage either, because it's so foreign to us, and they hold so many ideals that are that we don't hold to. Um, particularly since they've been made more progressive, these countries. But yeah, I think you're right. I think we are moving away from from that Western hegemony culturally. And and to go back to what I was saying earlier around the the different kind of like uh, cultures and the different socioeconomic groups in Australia. Will this affect any of the kind of uh, next generation of leaders? Do you see an insurgent, uh, particularly Asian class, coming up in the the coming generations that will influence politics, influence culture, influence you know, society, uh, legal structures, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Like, just look at what's happening in the UK. Um, the minister for the Irish prime minister is a, a homosexual Middle Easterner. Um, the UK, uh, the, uh, I don't know what the, the, his role is, but he's also from the Middle East. Um, Rishi Sunak's an Indian. Um, yeah, so, yeah, unfortunately, I think that's certainly the case. And I think that other countries are catching up. I mean, um, oh, why can't I remember his name? The US uh, Republican, Vivek Ramaswamy, of course, being an Indian. Um, Australia is probably, yeah, it's interesting how that hasn't really happened so much here yet, but I think it's only a matter of time, particularly as various parties try to vie for um, the increasing immigrant population in Australia. Yeah, don't worry. One Nation will, will make sure we have an Indian uh, party leader <laughs> first, I reckon. That's that's right. That's right. <laughs> and um, and just to, to wind back to what we were saying earlier around uh, the Liberal Party branching out to these Western uh, Western suburbs and these, these immigrant groups, do you see particularly uh, Indians, which, I mean, they've been the largest growing immigrant group, and I think they are the largest uh, non-European uh, by birth, uh, by a place of birth in Australia now. Do you see any sort of um, success in what uh, Mark Latham was trying to do by connecting the kind of um, older older stock kind of working class populism with a new, as Tucker Carlson would put it, working class, work, um, multiracial working class populism. Do you see any success in that occurring? Yeah, and I mean, it really depends who gets to them first. Like, sort of goes without saying, and I know quite a few Indian people, um, and they're all, they all become westernised within the second or third generation. Uh, and oftentimes they become more progressive than the residing population. 
Um, you know, first-generation immigrants carry over their conservative, their natural conservatism. But as soon as their children go through the school system and the university system and listen to Western music and watch Western movies, they become inculcated in um, liberalism, right? So, yeah, I don't really see that being as much of a like getting unless the culture changes. I don't see us getting much headway into that group. Do you have any insight as to why children of immigrants are more susceptible to the prevailing cultural influence than native-born Australians? It's probably an anti-colonial mindset, um, ironically, because they are, in a way, being colonised by Western culture uh, in that very act. But, yeah, I think that because because progressivism lends itself towards an anti-colonialism and these people are consciously non-European, um, they embrace that, that ideology that fits so well with anti-colonialism or anti-imperialism, whether it be Israel-Palestine, which you know, I, we probably are more um, favourable towards. But, yeah, other issues, um, I'm trying to think of one, maybe like South Africa, for example, um, that's a naturally anti-colonialist and progressive issue. Um, and those who have descended from those who are colonised um, sort of find themselves naturally leaning towards that issue. Do you see, because the effects of colonialism and the kind of people who lived under colonialism are increasingly becoming older and older generations, do you see it, this still being a, a, um, a tangible and real like social trauma almost going forward? That will, like slavery in the US, that will animate voting blocks into the future? Yeah, I think it will. And, you know, we see in Australia, um, whether it be with the stolen generations uh, or um, so called, or um, slavery, people can have no experience of um, past events uh, that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And yet, still, it still, still feels very personal for them. And they identify very strongly with it um, because they're told to, right? And I think in many ways, because they do have a genuine sort of ethnic feeling. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think that that feeling's going away. And I think it's going to continue to, to be what animates their, their political ideology and their decision-making. And do you think that because of this, um, this I mean, people would call it a victim mentality, would uh, be a, a stumbling block into any sort of outreach from the Liberal Party to these immigrant groups? In the future, yeah, I mean, um, definitely. You already see the Liberal Party seeding ground. It was um, actually Scott Morrison. Oh no! Even if you go back far enough, it was John Howard who initially proposed something like the Voice to Parliament, which we now have. It was Scott Morrison who changed the wording of this of the national anthem to make it more multicultural. Um, so yeah, we're, we are already seeing the Liberal Party seeding ground to try and compensate. And even this, um, um, if you go back to. Malcolm Fraser, sorry, he instituted the SBS for the purpose of having a multicultural news organisation, and that's in the yeah. 70s. Yeah. So, and the question is, like, um, why, why would the Liberal Party go forward with this kind of, you know, changing the lyrics of proposing the voice to Parliament if there is no result, you know? Like we see in America... Republicans keep out having this outreach to African American voters, and it doesn't work. So, why, from a political strategy, would they keep that going forward? Would you have any insight on that? I mean, I think they've got a realistic understanding of the demographic change or the replacement that's happening mm -hmm. in Australia. Um, 
even if you win 10% of an immigrant population, if that immigrant population is within the next few decades going to make up a majority of Australia, then inevitably there's still some utility in trying to get as many votes off them as they can. Like they know the white population's not growing. Uh, and so I think they're, they're sort of uh, seeing what lies ahead. In saying that, could it not be more fruitful for the Liberal Party to, to have a more uh, nativist policies of protecting the political strength and the position of native-born Australians through immigration policies and, and, um, and, uh, and any other policies? I guess you'd have to make an Im- improvement to the fertility rate. Um, like even if you stopped immigration tomorrow, which would be great, um, the non-European population still having far more children than the European population. And I think the European, or at least the Anglo-Saxon birth rates below replacement level. Um, if you fix that, then yeah, there'd be a lot of utility politically. But I, think, I, I guess um, the trajectory is not looking great. And why do you think the... Um... The fertility rate for, as you put it, Anglo-Saxons or even more broadly native-born Australians or European Australians is so low? I think it's probably an outlook on, I think people used to have children for a number of reasons, at least have more children for a number of reasons. There probably was a desire to sort of carry on um, their family line and their, their ethnic group. And people don't think that way anymore. But I think it's also probably a religious thing. Religious people tend to have more children. Um, because that seems to be a command from God, uh, and yet people aren't as religious as they used to be. So the reasons people had for having children, I don't think are present anymore. Yeah, I was I was going to say that because you do see the ability for people to own their own house being a strong determinant in when they have their first child, and so if if we have a housing market that is consistently uh, increasing above uh, the people's ability to afford housing, you will see a growing, um, a, a growing amount of people delaying ch- the first child beyond. Well, I think the current average for women is twenty eight. You'll see that reach the thirty soon, I believe, and that's just going to delay. If the first ch- uh, birth of first child is delayed, then the number of average, the average number of children per woman will also decrease. I mean, I suppose it's a question of, you know, what it, how have previous people lived their lives? Like, compared to the 50s and 60s, the housing market's not amazing. But we are more wealthy than people who have lived almost at any time before the 50s and 60s. Um, and yet, even those who had it worse off than us had more children. Um, I think the lower class people actually have more children than those who are the most wealthy. Um, so, yeah, I do agree that it probably does have some stuff to do with housing. But I probably would throw in some some sort of confounding variables yeah. like wealthy people not having as many children or people before us who are much poorer having more children. Yeah. I, I definitely don't think the housing issue is the main cause. I just think it's it's more of a um, compounding, uh, a more broader cultural and, and whatnot um, issues. Do you think... Um, like you said, that the lower classes are having more children than upper class people, which has been, which is inverted from most of history, uh, particularly Victorian era, where you had the upper classes having lots of children, 
And uh, like you look at Henry Parks, he had 17 children. And so um, I think it's 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 definitely an interesting time to see what will happen uh, to Australia with the, the, the lower classes having more children and how this will affect uh, Australian society, you know, the competency breakdown in competency that, that many people are forecasting it'd be because you see a lot of people in the distant right all these thinkers and whatnot talk about um the 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 decrease in iq and how this is going to be exacerbated by the different birth rates between the social classes and how the effects that will have on society particularly um edward uh, edward dutton i think the british bloke that's right do yeah, you see this one being a particular issue for Australia Josh the the um the growing decrease in competency from uh, from I think so. changing demographics and whatnot I think so yeah I think that Australians will need to begin if it gets as bad as it could Australians would probably have to begin to live different lifestyles that would mitigate those problems um I think that you do continue to see a a tree change because standard of living is yeah declining in some parts of Sydney or other cities. Um, I, I, suppose, I suppose a more traditional life lends itself to being able to mitigate the problems that are caused by that change. Um, I think that will continue. Cause in, yeah. Because in large industrial societies, there is a lot of trust put into the people around you. And if there is an increasing lack of competency in, in the basic services, you know, transport, uh, food, water, there is a lot more risk to being in the city. So do you, I don't want to say a re, uh, going back to early Australia, this kind of settler colonial kind of mindset, but do you see do you mm. see this kind of, because um, back then a lot of the influential upper class people were landowners out in the country. Do you see that coming back in any way? I mean, I think we already saw it coming back with the millennial generation. You know, I've got a few millennial friends and a lot of them like, whether it's things that are a little superfluous, like making your own kombucha, uh, but yeah, like baking their own bread, planting their own gardens, sewing, knitting, um, things that yeah. are sort of self, self-sustaining. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think, That's been a bit of, in the yeah. areas. I think um, also in, in, in rural settings, you do have institutions like Men's Sheds and the CWA which do help teach these skills, which I think because um, to someone like uh, my mother's generation, not knowing like women today don't know how to sew and make clothes, whereas someone, my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother's generation, that's just second nature to know how to make clothes, know how to, you know, cook and bake and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's, it's um, I think uh, that's all for today, Josh, don't you think? I mean, keep, yeah, you can I keep rambling on if you want. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm pretty easy either way, to be honest. But um, yeah, yeah, you did well. Be, co- yeah, congratulations if you made it through an hour and a half. Yeah. Last <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so yeah, um, I think in, 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 in summary for today's episode, if, if, you, if you've been a good listener paying attention so, so far, it's just, we need to be as a as a right wing movement a little more open minded to what could be 
what, 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 in the sense of um, ideological outreach to younger generations, in terms of what we can do to influence culture uh, and how we can move forward as, as a movement in a multiracial Australia. I think that, um, yeah, just an open-mindedness and, and a willingness to not be stuck in what was and what has always been, but a willingness to be fluid. But but also sticking, that doesn't mean um, abandoning our principles, I think is the main takeaway. I think you're right. And I think principles, the expression of principles is always changing based on the culture, but the principles are always mm. sort of there undergirding it. Yeah. Yeah. God, faith and family. That's right. Key principles. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So um, thank you, Josh, for joining us this week. Um, thank you. You want to do any shout outs? Uh, well, I've got, I've got Anon recently, so I won't do Bye-bye. Anyway, <laughs> I've got on recently, so uh, I Fair can't enough. do too many shout-outs. But I'll shout-out the National Observer, and I'll also shout-out oh, uh, Christianity. You. You should, you should, people should go to church. That's, that's all I have to say. Yeah, preferably Catholic church, you know. Uh, <laughs> we, can, we can talk about that some other time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we, yeah, we are wrapping it up. So um, hope you enjoyed the episode, everyone at home. Thank you again to Josh and to Flynn for joining us. Um, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the Substack. That's uh, nationalobserver.substack.com where you get access to the highest quality Australian political podcasts and articles. Um, Hope you guys enjoy your new year and uh, best wishes for 2024. Cool. Thanks for having me on.